With the recent COVID-forced move to online instruction for both K-12 and higher ed, has come an intense discussion of best teaching practices in digital spaces. While the focus has been on teaching online, the conversation has foregrounded long-standing debates over pedagogy and practice in education. Understanding what works in the classroom is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Ellen Yazerski. Yazerski is a professor of chemistry at Miami University and received her PhD in science education. Before becoming a professor, she spent six years as a high school chemistry teacher. At Miami, Yazerski has served as the director for the Center of Teaching Excellence since 2018. Ellen, thank you so much for being, for being here today. Thanks, Rosemary. Glad to be here. Just to get us started, could you tell us a little bit about what the Center of Teach for Teaching Excellence does at Miami? Sure. Um, the Center for Teaching Excellence has been established for about over 40 years, and our goal is to work side by side with colleagues to improve teaching, and we do that in a number of ways. We do it through programming. We do it through faculty learning communities. We sponsor um, the original Lilly Conference on College Teaching, but overall, the, the big themes would be um, supporting faculty and helping them learn, and then building uh, communities, specifically communities of practice around effective teaching. And it's been um, a great run so far, and we have been very busy of late. So, so what drew you into to wanting to be uh, to help people teach better? I mean, I you know, it's one thing to teach your discipline as a chemist and as someone who who is trying to convey science and engage engage learners in science, but what, what took you to this, this sort of the next level of teaching the teachers? Sure. Um, well, I've spent my whole career thinking about learning and uh, students learning more effectively. And I would say that when I first started in higher education, my goal was to support pre-service teachers um, in, who were going to be high school chemistry teachers. And also, um, I got into research on faculty development for high school teachers. And so it was a natural kind of transition to move to that same space in higher education. And I think what happens is, is that we know that what happens in the classroom um, and what happens in learning is all driven by what the teachers do and the teachers' choices and their expertise and their sets of beliefs and ideas about learning. And so having an influence there, I think, is the kind of the nexus to improving uh, student learning. So Ellen, uh, like you, I started out as a high school teacher, high school English for three, uh, five years. Um, also, and this is just a more general question on teaching. Um, I remember when I started my PhD program, I had already had experience as a teacher and that was not a problem for me, but I felt like teaching graduate students how to teach, we didn't do a very good job at that. And uh, is, has that improved? And uh, is that something that, that you tackle? I, I think this is part of a, a kind of a larger issue of, of teaching and science as well. Yeah, Richard, I would say that 
there are pockets all over the country in particular PhD programs where they're focusing on how to support people in learning pedagogy. Um, but we have to think about what a PhD is. A PhD is a research degree, right? And um, it is this opportunity for people to be taking a deep dive into uncovering some new disciplinary knowledge. And um, it, it might not match, right? Learning how to become a faculty member where teaching is a big part of your responsibility. And so there's definitely um, a gap there, right? But I'm not sure that it's necessarily the responsibility of the PhD program to close that gap because of what the PhD represents. I don't know if that sounds like a cop-out, but, um, but, but there seems to be other places, and particularly in, in my discipline, where professional organizations are saying, all right, what can we do about um, the, the lack of readiness, right, for people going into higher education to, to meet the demands, not just of research, but also of, of teaching and service, being a good colleague and a leader in, in a really complex environment, you know, how can we support people to do that? And so I think, um, you know, the American Chemical Society, for example, is, is stepping up to do some really valuable um, faculty development for uh, new uh, chemists who are going into faculty positions. And, you know, I'm sure ASA is doing things. So, so it, 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 it's kind of like we need to all get together and say, all right, what is the whole system look like and what are the pieces parts of that system and who can step in and help without compromising you know some of the things that I think are really important like that deep dive into building disciplinary knowledge. So, so Ellen I have a really easy question you know just you know so so how do people learn you know, and, and so, and then, and, and by the way, is I just like to add a, qu a quick follow up. You know, given you know, given that simple answer you're gonna you're gonna share with us, how do you you best teach to that the, to the way people learn so that that you have the most impact? So I hate to disappoint you with a really <laughs> short answer. Okay, it's it's definitely complicated, but the way people learn um, is their brains naturally do it. Like we're built for that. We go through this natural sense-making and meaning-making process in the world. And if you especially watch little people, you watch children, anybody who has had children, grandchildren, nieces or nephews around, and watch people grow, you don't need to give them a really good lecture on walking. You know, they figure out how to walk and they figure out through, through these experiences and interacting with their surroundings and with other people. Um, and so I think that the most important thing that we can do is recognize that people learn naturally and maybe the problem isn't um, that, you know, we don't understand learning because we actually know a lot about learning. The problem is, is that our classrooms don't look anything like how we naturally learn. So if we could sh reshape those spaces and reshape those experiences to ha tap into what naturally happens, maybe it's not that scary. So how do you define effectiveness in a, in a space where, like, a, like a college classroom or even a high school classroom, which is a artificially constructed space that you're supposed to learn in? How do we figure out what is effective? Sure. So we have to decide what effectiveness means. We have to define effectiveness first. Um, so for example, one thing we know is that people like naturally construct knowledge from experiences. So if, um, but maybe not by like listening to somebody talk at slides, 
for 55 minutes, you know. So, so then maybe effectiveness um, kind of parameterized that in that way would be that if the students are more engaged and the students are actually doing something with the content as opposed to just listening to some expert talk about it, um, then maybe that could be one measure of effectiveness. And, and the measure part's really important, right? Because we have to decide, you know, what can we capture? What can we see? What can we count? What can we measure that's going on in the classroom that's going to give us some kind of indication as to the extent to which students are, you know, engaged with the content, right? So um, there's there's a really interesting instrument out there that people have been using. It's called the COPUS. It, um, I always forget what the acronym is. It's a classroom observation protocol for undergraduate STEM. So STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And, um, and it's it's a it's an observation instrument where every two minutes the uh, person who's collecting the data is indicating what the teacher and what the student happen to be doing or students happen to be doing and and you can imagine that if you wanted to change your copus profile as it as it were that you would spend more time having the students doing something than the teacher doing something and i always say she who does the work does the learning so uh, mm -hmm. the copus is you know, kind of a, a neat way just to look at this very um, kind of, I don't know, I, I would call it like kind of course level, C-O-A-R-S-E, kind of course level um, indicator of what's going on in the classroom. Now, I think that it's a lot more complicated than what the COPUS captures, but if, if uh, you can imagine a group of colleagues deciding that if engagement speaks to effect, effectiveness, then maybe measuring engagement would be a fruitful way to go. So how Go ahead, I have a I have a, a confession. So the only D I ever got in high school in any was a semester in chemistry. So <laughs> it also uh, it also kind of put me off science. I didn't think I was going to be good at science. And I think this happens. We've talked a lot about this with st statistics and math, not so much about science, but I think I think a lot of students who could actually excel in science go a different direction fairly early on and i think that happens to both in high school and i think it happens to college students as well can you speak to that a little bit and maybe more about what what can be done in the classroom to sort of uh deal with that sort of fear of science that some students and adults have yeah i I'm, I'm sorry, Richard, that you didn't have a really good high school chemistry teacher because then, you know, you'd be retired from my department, right? Because <laughs> so inspired. Um, so I think what happens is, is that um, we kind of get these blind spots as experts and we lose touch with important things that a novice is experiencing. Um, one of those things might be um, like the why, like why, wh what's the point, right? Why, I don't wanna be a doctor, I don't wanna be a chemist. Why do I have to even learn chemistry? And if we, and I think if you show students really f like neat explosions, that's fun for that 30 seconds, but then it doesn't relate to their life, right? And that's not really the role that science plays. In fact, good chemists, control reactions they don't they don't blow things up unless it's in a bomb calorimeter and they mean to do it but but anyway um the the key thing there is is that the relevance has to be there for people to engage and we also have to think about 
how do you kind of shape knowledge in the discipline? You know, it, how does a novice look at things? And uh, chemistry is a great example because when you're, when you're a chemist, you get really, really good at dealing with symbols. So see, this is going to relate to statistics. It's coming. When, when you're a good chemist, you have all of these really convenient shorthand ways of representing complex ideas. And you manipulate those really easily, and you can talk to other chemists in this super shorthand, bizarre way, and they know exactly conceptually what you're talking about. But then we try to take that and do that with novices. They don't have the conceptual understanding. They don't have that foundation. They don't know what these symbols mean. So then they just become really good at manipulating symbols to, you know, get quiz questions right and get good grades and move on and that's, you know, that's really not desirable. So we really need to get back to like the core concepts in, in our disciplines, especially in, in the sciences. And I'm sure this is something that in statistics education, people are focused on. I mean, you can learn all kinds of rules and regs to move symbols around, right? But that's not what statistics is. You know, you have to be thinking about like, what are those, what do those values mean? And what does that mean for whatever, is out in the world that you're studying and trying to make sense of, you know, and use statistics to better understand, you know, and I think a lot of the chemical symbols and things are, are along those lines too. So I would say that's what we need to do. We need to stop moving symbols around and start getting into concepts. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Ellen Yazerski, the director for the Center for Teaching Excellence at Miami University. Ellen, you've been talking a lot about sort of what novices need, but I wonder how that experience in the classroom uh, of sort of getting, you know, what what does that look like for a more advanced student, right? So, you know, obviously with the novice, relate it back to their, to their life in some way you know, help them understand the logic behind the symbols or whatever it is, right? But once you have them in maybe your major or maybe they're a minor or maybe they're taking the class because it just sounds interesting and fits into their schedule, how does that change for those more advanced students? How does that that engagement and that thinking about what effective is for them sort of how should it shift the way a professor or a, or a high school teacher or any teacher sort of approaches the subject? That's a really hard question to answer, <laughs> but I appreciate it because it really gets everybody thinking. So, so you think about as you build expertise in the discipline, how do your ideas change? What does um, what does it mean like that you can do this year that you couldn't do last year, kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And I can say specifically in chemistry, it's you start to think about the world on the molecular level and. Everything in chemistry has to do with what atoms and ions and molecules are doing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so reasoning with chemical ideas means reasoning with models, Mm -hmm. okay? It really comes down to understanding models and their role in, um, in doing science. And so as you get more and more sophisticated, you start to understand what the limitations of those models are, what the generalizability of different models are, and you start to understand that, oh, we had to oversimplify this principle so that we could, you know, make sense of it at the end of first year chemistry. But then, oh, in physical chemistry, you have enough mathematical understanding that you can now kind of put another layer onto that model, a mathematical version of this particle model, for example. Mm -hmm. And, oh, wow, you know, we can ramp up the complexity because we now understand, um, 
you know, we have other ways of representing the phenomena that's under study or representing um, people's ideas about what's governing the phenomena under study in nature. So, um, so yeah, as we build sophistication, we get more tools in our toolbox, we get more complex kinds of reasoning. And if we think about how that relates to teaching, right, we have to methodically plan students steps up those rungs of a ladder right mm -hmm. and so so one of the things I always talk about in in the center is you have to really understand the structure of your discipline mm -hmm. if you are going to generate meaningful experiences that are going to lead to learning right and it takes a lot of expertise to do that and just because like you're really good and mm -hmm. you know have a PhD or you have a master's degree you may or may not understand the structure of the knowledge and the discipline well enough to be able to create those those you know learning experiences that carefully scaffold one another so that students can develop expertise in a meaningful way um you know that's that's to me that's the golden ticket right mm -hmm. if we can help faculty to do that they're going to be highly highly effective and and if we could get faculty to do that within departments as they sequence students courses and experiences that's even a golder ticket if that's a word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. More golden yeah, ticket. Now. How's that? Yeah. Sorry, Richard's giving me a, like a stink eye now. Um, I like when our guests invent new words. Yes, and, and it is. Yeah, who knows? We'll just keep working on that. I, can I change gears just a little bit, just to think about where we're living right now in terms of uh, virtual instruction? You know, and it's you know you've you've suggested the importance of of active and, and engaged learning. And I, I mean, that was that for me in, in thinking about my own my own journey from from both from learner to, to, to early instructor to, to more to, to more seasoned seasoned instructor. I mean, I, I certainly am doing things differently. And and the active learning part can seems it's it's more natural in a in a face to face environment. In the although here here we are remotely with with five <laughs> of us in different locations doing this and we're able to to make this work, but it's but there's some nuance here that's a little tougher to to build in. So can can you talk a little bit about in in these days where we have this kind of distancing and isolation and a lot of virtual learning? What are what are some takeaways for doing our business effectively? Yeah, so um, I don't have a ton of experience teaching online, um, but I have been getting way more than I signed up for <laughs> in um, teaching my graduate students in, in this remote way, as well as teaching faculty. And I would say it was it's more remote than online because I'm not carefully sequencing, designing and sequencing like asynchronous activities for them to do on their own, kind of like kind of the hallmark of good online instruction. Um, but one of the things that has been coming up over and over and over since the center's been working really, really hard with our colleagues has been that it doesn't matter whether it's face-to-face -face or it's online, the principles are the same. It's all about starting with what does learning look like and then how can we help people build expertise to be able to evidence that learning. And then it's like, okay, so what tools and spaces and um, strategies do we have at our disposal to make that happen? And then when we switched to remote and online, all of the tools and strategies changed, right? But 
what we needed to kind of facilitate or, or, or help happen in the learner didn't. Um, and so because the the kind of the, the tools changed and the, the, the environments changed, um, some of the weaknesses got blown up. Okay, so I can give you a really specific example. If you have an activity that you want your students to do and you're in a face-to-face -face class and you give the directions and the students start and either the directions are poor and they don't know what to do or they go off in a different direction than you want them to go in, you can correct it right there. You can say, hey, 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 can I have everyone's attention up at the front here? Um, remember how I said to use model two? I need all the groups to be looking at model one data for this activity. Okay, and then there's this reset, and then everything goes. And so, I'll, and so, you know, the, the instructor will will have been responsive. The instructor will have, um, you know, kind of redirected the students in the right direction. Um, but you can imagine that if if you gave that same assignment online and it was asynchronous, and the directions either weren't good or it just the activity had some more flaws to it. Then what happens is the instructor gets, I don't know, a hundred emails complaining, I don't know what to do. And the, the, the stress, you know, of the instructor, like this is not going well. You know, this, this class activity that's supposed to take us from point A to point B in our learning is not happening. And there's a lot of anxiety because sometimes the students might not offer the critiques in the most constructive way. It's not they, they might not say something like, I don't believe the instructions are clear enough for me to make the most of my learning. They might not say that. <laughs> they might say, what the heck with number 12? This is ridiculous. I can't do this. Or what a waste of time, you know. And so um, all of those things that we take for granted in terms of that synchronous, rapid communication and correction they seem to go away, which really puts a bigger burden on us as instructors to design things that are a little bit more like instruction proof, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and, and I would say that to me is the hardest part because people haven't necessarily gone through that whole thought process all the way, you know, they're, they're familiar with getting those students started, right, and then being able to adjust. Now it's like you've got to get them started and then you've got to build in all those checkpoints along the way and then a really high quality assessment to help tell you what's going on and if the students really have met the learning outcomes. And so I think that's, that's, that's where we are now in, in you know, just building our expertise. I'd like to ask you a little bit about, to switch directions again, uh, like some of the work you've done on the uh, lack of uh, good STEM teaching, good STEM teachers, recruiting them in both middle school and high school. And I think in one of your uh, articles I read about, uh, and correct me if this is wrong, that only about 25% of programs, graduate programs, even address the possibility of teaching uh, in high school or junior high school as an option, a, a career option. Is that right? And what do we do about yes. that? Yes. Right. So so you're talking um, specifically about, I believe, an editorial that was in the Journal of Chemical Education about a project that I'm involved in called Get the Facts Out. Um, yeah. And that project is um, a really great uh, collaboration between the American Physical Society, the American Chemical Society, American Mathematics Association. And um, yeah, we're trying to change people's ideas about 
middle and high school teaching, specifically chemistry, physics, and mathematics are the areas where um, we're, we're trying to, um, you know, kind of fire up interest and do that by, um, you know, combating some of the myths that are out there. I think one of the things that we've worked on in that project that's interesting is that um, sometimes faculty in those disciplines, if they have a really, you know, awesome student who's really successful um, and they say, yeah, I want to be a high school chemistry teacher, um, maybe some of those faculty, instead of saying, awesome, I want to connect you with the right people to help you develop your skills so you can, you know, kill it as a teacher, they say things like, oh, you could do so much more. Why don't, why don't you go to graduate school? You know, mm. why don't you go to industry where you can make a lot more money, you know, or, you know, or, or, you know, you're so bright, you're better than that. And, 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 mm. you know, these are, these are embarrassing messages, <laughs> right? Um, but unfortunately people have inaccurate ideas about secondary teaching and the excitement and the challenge and the salary and the benefits that, that, that people can, um, experience and so yeah so so I think that you know we have a lot of different um, prongs to that project one is is to help educate faculty about uh, STEM teaching um, and 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 maybe you know maybe some of them aren't like against it but maybe not promoting it is mm -hmm. is you know a problem too and having it be on that list of viable careers like if you're mm -hmm. a chemistry major or mm -hmm. you know if you're a physics major so kind of just getting the word out there and it's been it's been a really fun project um i love the idea of you know confronting ideas and people that are a little it's like spicy it's fun <laughs> I, so, I i like being the contrarian sometimes <laughs> but. i so the one thing that i keep thinking about in relation to like my own teaching and as i think about this issue of teaching effectiveness and sort of helping students learn is this issue of trust mm. which you can't capture really with a quantitative measure, right? But which seems to be kind of the foundation to all of this, right? So I guess how important is it to building trust? And is are there ways that you have seen in your work at the center where where instructors can sort of think about how to approach that and make their their classroom spaces where trust can be built? So that way the student, when you lead them down this path that seems terrifying, knows that they're safe exploring the topic with you. I think that the work that uh, Carol Dweck, who's a psychologist out at Stanford, on mindset, on growth mindset versus fixed mindset are the pop science words that um, is used to describe that, um, becomes a really cool framework for thinking about how do we encourage learning? And are there things that we do and say as faculty that, that really send the message that our role is not to develop people, but just to sort and select the people who already like look like me or have whatever it is. I'm doing air quotes now on the podcast. Um, so, so, you know, unfortunately, a lot of disciplines, you know, the sort and select thing has worked for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And we've kept people out of our disciplines um, that could be, I don't know, winning Nobel Prizes, making the most giant contributions, um, at the very least, just getting us to see things from different perspectives. And so for us to um, encourage in our students that we believe mm -hmm. that they can learn, I think we also need to help them believe that they can learn. I can't tell you how many students have said, you know, I'm just not good at math. 
Yeah. I, I was one of those in undergrad. Yeah. I hated math. And they went to grad school and I was like, I actually really love math. Yeah. They but say, oh, like, oh, I can't, yeah. I can't do math or I can't write or all these kinds of things. And it's, it's like, well, hold on a second. Um, you absolutely can grow in that area. Um, let's figure out how to do that. Um, so there's some messages I think that faculty unintentionally send mm -hmm. that might say that it's fixed. I know for me, one of the things I stopped doing in my classroom is I stopped using the word study. Mm. Study is a just a dirty word in my class. I don't say study. Because what I learned is that when I think of studying and when my students think of studying, it is not the same activity. <laughs> so um, studying to students meant memorizing something. Yeah. You know, and not like working through problems and figuring out patterns and, you know, analyzing data and, you know, making sense of things and writing explanations. It doesn't matter what the homework questions look like, it seemed. They, they studying, learning outside of class and studying were not the same thing to my students. Mm -hmm. So I figured that out and I took the word study out of my syllabus and I don't talk about studying. I talk about learning outside of class. Mm -hmm. oh, and when I say, you know, I say learning then oh okay well learning is different because they, my students told me and I got this by the way this is not original this is a, a Sandra McGuire um, who's from Louisiana State University I believe she's retired now uh, Sandra I got the idea to ask my students like are studying and learning the same thing and what do you think of when you hear studying what do you think of when you hear learning and when I asked a really really large class that and got some insights I went oh Hmm. Maybe I should change hmm. my words. <laughs> so, so message is really important. You know, you're listed on that grant that you described as a change agent. I, I, I love that as a as a title. And and Ellen, it's 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 pretty clear from the passion and your your interest that you certainly are bringing that to to, to people's teaching and learning. So, thank you for that. Thank you. I'm glad you noticed that. <laughs> well, that is all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Ellen, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, everyone. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.